Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, the understanding of, of Russia, which is broadly as Russia is a great power that has its own special path, that has a mission, and that needs a strong state, you know, and, and a different path to that of the West. I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only going to be felt over a longer period of time. Baltic ways. The countries that when the war started, they were willing to be, you know, those uh, voices of uh, moral conscience. The continent. I think that this conflict today proves that we are able to go past grievances and that we are able to look into the future, into the common future together. Report in short. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. And of course, our flagship chain reaction. These two countries are interacting militarily or have been interacting in several different conflicts. And in some cases, they're on the same side and in some cases, they're not. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. Let's start this episode with a poll. Have you ever been following or participating in a conversation about the war in Ukraine and heard an argument to the following effect? The two sides, well, they should just sit down together at the negotiating table, hash out their differences, and bring the war to a close. Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Schwartzbaum, and on this episode, we're going to be answering, well, how do wars end? What prompts sides to approach the negotiating table, and what determines the success of these negotiations? This, of course, has important implications for Ukraine, but it's not about Ukraine per se. And on this episode and the next one, we're going to be exploring some of the broader theory that I think is very relevant to what's happening in the current conflict. Joining us to discuss this fascinating topic is Dr. Christine Chang, an associate professor in war studies at King's College London. Christine is the author of Extralegal Groups in Post-Conflict Liberia, How Trade Makes the State, and she was also the principal investigator of a major interdisciplinary project on violence and peaceful behavior in fragile states. Working with the UK government's stabilization unit, she co-authored Securing and Sustaining Elite Bargains that Reduce Violence Conflict, the final report of the Influential Elite Bargains and Political Deals Project. Last but not least, she is a trustee with Conciliation Resources. So how do wars end? Let's jump in. Christine, welcome to the Bear Market Brief. Great to have you by today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. So to help our listeners understand who you are, tell me a little bit more about your research focus and what's keeping you busy these days. So I generally study war to peace transitions. That's my that's my passion. And I really want to understand how societies move through that very difficult transformation from being a place where there's quite a lot of violent conflict and strife and um, difficulties in social cohesion, and then finding their way through that and out of that. Yeah, so that's generally what I 
am really interested in understanding and, and puzzling through. Uh, in terms of what I'm working on these days, uh, I'm doing a whole bunch of things. One is I'm putting together a project on oil and the political economy of oil with a couple of friends from Chatham House. I'm also working on another project looking at how we study this stuff, how we study uh, armed actors and what are the research ethics around the study of these groups and and how researchers should be thinking about that. So those are just two of the projects that I'm working on right now. Both utterly fascinating topics that I'll have to ask you about uh, following this episode. Uh, But let's turn to the subject matter today, because I think you talk about the end of armed conflict, and we hope soon, but the war in Ukraine, Russia's latest invasion, will eventually end. The conflict will draw to a close. And I think thinking through what that might look like, how that might develop is really important. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, there's a lot of calls to just negotiate. And one of my poli-sci international relations tips for listeners is that when someone says the word just, that's your red flag that you got to examine that a lot deeper because things don't just happen. So Let's turn to the subject matter today. I want to talk about coding, and I don't mean computer programming, but if you're doing academic research and you're looking at a list of wars and trying to figure out how each one ended, what are some of the possible outcomes to war and which ones do we tend to see more or less frequently? So in the old days, uh, we would see quite a few military victories, right, where one side clearly wins over the other. And then basically more post-Cold War, we started to see more negotiated settlements where you would see the two sides come together and um, they would they would talk through the end of the war and usually come to some kind of an agreement. You know, these, what we talk about is peace processes and peace agreements. So oftentimes, and more often than not, you would try and go through this process lots and lots and lots and lots of times. Um, and many of those times it, it would fail. And then hopefully at some point it sticks, right? So those are negotiated settlements. Um, and those have become a, a little bit less frequent now, but you know, kind of in that golden era, uh, maybe about 20 years after the post-Cold War period, they were making up quite a large percentage of how we managed to end wars. Um, so yeah, those are those are basically the the two ways in which we can easily think about how how things come to an end. Um, either one side clearly wins or you find some way of getting out of it by, by talking it through. The talking it through can be difficult and, and complex, of course. Like I said, with lots of different rounds, you could have different actors involved. The UN is often involved, but sometimes it's a set of uh, regional powers. Um, sometimes it could just be, it, it can take place from inside the country, but sometimes with external actors who are influential. So you might have, say, for example, um, in Kosovo, you had the US and Richard Holbrook playing a big role in the power negotiation in bringing the two sides together and just making the deal happen. Um, So there are all sorts of different ways in which outside mediators can also play a role and bring things to an end. A quick follow-up question, if I might. So you had mentioned that during the Cold War, there were a lot more, I guess, outright victories, if you might call it that. Any thoughts on why that may have changed after the Cold War? Um, yeah, I, 
it looks like, well, basically the, the two sides weren't talking to each other during the Cold War, right? So there was not really a way to do anything except fight it out. Um, so when it became very clear that one side, you know, the, the Western side, the U.S. side, had become the hegemonic power in the world, a lot of the impetus for fighting those wars from the other side, from the Russian side, from the, I should say, the Soviet side, um, all of that funding dried up. And so internally within what what became proxy wars actually turned into civil wars. And a lot of those groups that had to sustain the war had to find different ways of doing so. So when you are look, thinking about the political economy of how to keep a war going, a lot of the, the money that was fueling that thing, if, if one side of it dries up and then the other side on the American and Western side of that, you know, they're not interested in funding it anymore either, right? Because the original reason why both sides were fighting was um, basically to assert, assert their power, but against each other, right? So they were fueling the folks who were on their side of the conflict. But now the raison d'etre is gone. Right. So that proxy war just isn't relevant, isn't politically relevant in the same way. And so, you know, the you either have to manufacture or find some other reason to keep those wars going or you are pressed to negotiate and, and find a way to end that war. So the dynamics of the conflict just change over time. One of the questions I've grappled with in, in my research is understanding what what winning even means. And I think there's a lot of politics that educate that. But for listeners, how do you think about that kind of question? What kind of questions would it raise for you to kind of answer and nail down in a given conflict? What are your thoughts there? That's a really lovely and difficult question. Um, so I think a lot of times, you know, winning is in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes everybody agrees who wins out of a particular war, and everybody agrees who loses. Sometimes you actually get disagreement, right? So um, it's, and sometimes it looks like one side has won temporarily, but then over time, it doesn't look like that anymore, right? So if we look at, if we take a snapshot in time of what happened uh, with the invasion of Afghanistan, and I asked you in 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, who won that war? you would definitely say the Americans won that war. If I asked you then 2021, say August of 2021, <laughs> uh, Taliban has come back and I asked you who who won that war? You know, the answer is definitely not the Americans, right? So, so the ways in which things can change over time, part of the answer lies in when are you asking the question and whose point of view you're asking it from? So if I asked you that same question, say sometime around 2008, 9, 10, 11, maybe sometime between 2008 and 2015, and I asked that question in different parts of Afghanistan, who has won the war, right? People in Kabul, they might say the Americans. People in government, in the Afghan government, would say the Americans. If you ask people out in the hinterland, in different parts of rural Afghanistan, I don't think that they would say the Americans won. So part of this depends on sort of who you're asking, the time frame in which you're thinking about that question, um, and sort of your mindset too, right? Because even you could ask the same set of people and maybe defending, depending on their 
ethnic identity or their political affiliations, they will still have a different answer to that question, even though the same set of people in the same village might have had a similar experience, right? So there are all sorts of ways to answer that question of, you know, what does winning look like? And what what do you think counts as a victory, right? So you can actually win that particular battle. Um, and it looks like that in, say, you know, 2002 in Afghanistan, but actually really, really lose that war over time. Does it mean that if you have temporarily um, gained influence over the Afghan government at the time, but then you have tens or even hundreds of thousands of civilians dying over the next two decades, um, is that a win? You know, if you ask me, that doesn't really look like a win. You can declare it a win. You can spin it as a win. And frankly, you know, from the Western side, nobody will know the difference because we don't report those stories, right? But if you ask the Afghan people, if you ask the people in the region, if you ask neighboring Pakistanis, if you ask anybody in the Muslim world, would they declare it a win? I doubt it. Uh, Maybe they would declare it a draw at best, but it doesn't, you know, that, that question is just... It really, really depends on how you're thinking about the world and how you think about power and where you sit in that question. A very interesting and I think on point answer. Um, But next question, let's put you into the mind and the shoes of country A that has been at war with country X. Uh, Why might you not want to negotiate? Or on the flip side, what might prompt you to approach the negotiating table? So one interesting concept that we use in academia um, is an idea that that William Zartman put forward. And it's called a mutually hurting stalemate, right? So when basically both sides are at maximum pain, and it typically... We typically think about this point as people have fought a very, 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 very long war. Both sides have suffered a lot of casualties. And it becomes clear over time that neither side can actually um, win an outright victory, right? So it's literally what it sounds like. It is mutually hurting with the hurting being, you know, a key part of this. So, So you've tried and you failed over time. And if we think about a case like, Northern Ireland, if we think about a case like Colombia, um, in both those cases, you have these conflicts going on for decades, right? Insurgency forms or, you know, different different kind of iterations of the same conflict, generations of fighters, and the thing just doesn't seem like it will ever end. And neither side can fight the other side to a win. And both sides, both sides have their weapons and can can still use them. Um, so when we get to the point of a mutually hurting statement, in theory, in theory, you could argue that, um, as Zartman does argue, that that's a good point at which the war is most likely to be able to be negotiated to an end when you have that mutually hurting stalemate. Um, so that's that's a that's a pain point to think about when when you can draw things to an end. And another way of thinking about it is at the beginning of the war, right when when things quite haven't quite settled into a pattern of fighting, um, there is a way in which you can, you might still be able to draw the actors around the table. The problem is this kind of in-between bit where 
you're sort of into a rhythm of war now. Neither side wants to give up for all sorts of reasons. Um, they don't want to lose face. They might not want to cede territory. I mean, going back to the original question that you asked, right? Why might you not want to negotiate? Um, in the particular case of Ukraine, if we're thinking about the internal rhetoric, right, of all the sides. So within Russia, you hear the rhetoric being ramped up. It's very, very hard to, for Vladimir Putin to back down from that rhetoric. And you also hear the other side of the rhetoric, right? So from Zelensky's side, the rhetoric there is, is very much about survival of your country, survival of your identity, survival of everything that you are. How could you possibly negotiate with the other side, right? That is surrendering yourself. And then in addition to that, if you think about the Americans, the Europeans, Western allies who are backing all of that up, that rhetoric is similarly deep, right? Think about all the Eastern Europeans um, and the Balkan, the, Balkan um, sorry, the Baltic states that are right uh, neighboring Ukraine and really giving it their full-throated support and are quite worried about what is going on here. They are not going to back down, right? So even if, just consider that Zelensky wants to negotiate, well, his he can't possibly do that without bringing down the morale of his troops in a way, right? So if you think about that, and then on top of that, you've got the neighbors, and then on top of that, you've got all the people who are sending you all the weapons, sending you all the money, you know, pushing you along. Um, and in effect, I think, if you think about what Zelensky and the Ukrainians are doing, they are fighting a war on behalf of the West, right? And that is why everybody is happy to funnel the weapons to them, because they are doing some, some pretty dirty work that nobody else is willing to do. And they are doing it with their full hearts, because their survival really is at stake. Um, but you know, the difficulty of convincing your people then after you've walked them all the way to the edge of the cliff and then saying, actually, you know, we really need to, we need to talk to these people. It makes it so, so difficult. So on both sides, you've just got this deep tension. Um, and imagine trying to walk everybody back, right? I can't even in this country, in the UK, the whole, um, I would say Putin has been demonized so severely that he is almost seen as somebody who is evil and that we cannot negotiate with. That's very, very difficult then for, say, the prime minister or our foreign minister to walk back, right? You have to walk back your people along with, you know, actually saying it makes sense to do this at this particular time. It's probably still doable, but we're just the UK. If you think about what that sounds like actually in other parts of of Europe, right? If you think about what um, the Polish are saying, if you think about what the Estonians are saying, you know, they are they are 150% behind Zelensky. So I think all of that makes it really difficult to negotiate. Yeah, I think the question or topic you brought up about identity and who's winning when you've been on the receiving end of Russian imperialism before, that educates educates your view of who maybe who is winning, who needs to win. I want to ask about um, this credibility question of walking your people back. But I want to ask kind of a mechanical process question. So in the literature, in your research, how do these negotiations usually work? You had said before that there are multiple rounds. 
who tends to be involved, how do they go, what leads to success generally, what leads them to fall apart. How do we think about that? Oh, the answer to that is fascinating. And um, I've had several PhD students actually work through those kinds of things. So, uh, and, and lots and lots of people study this. So it is, it's just such an endlessly fascinating topic for me. Um, but I'll, I'll start by saying a couple of things. So how do we think about this? Um, you've got lots of different actors who are potentially helpful to bringing things to an end. Some things to think about here. One is this issue that you brought up of credibility, right? So who has credibility with the actors? In this case, and also who has power in the world at a particular moment in time? So if we go back in time, during the Cold War, um, it's more difficult to negotiate an end to some of these things. Post-Cold War, it's pretty clear who who the reigning powers are, right? Where where power lies. So the U.S. can do a lot to maneuver behind the scenes. And if you think about it from a U.N. perspective, the U.N. was quite helpful in bringing an end to quite a number of, of wars. But in part, that sits because they have quite a lot of levers, say, through the U.N. Security Council. You can do things, right? So we use sanctions a lot these days, Um to try and put pressure on particular countries to behave in particular ways. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're ill-advised and actually have the complete opposite intended effect of what we're hoping for. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes they, they do their job. Um, so there are different levers that you can, you can use to bring people to the table. Some of them are financial, some of them are political. You can have inducements. Um, so say, for example, in this case with Ukraine, it's quite possible, and I'm not saying that this is the case, but I could speculate that if I were in the EU's shoes, or maybe if I was in President Biden's shoes, that I might uh, encourage the EU to offer a faster accession process to the EU as an inducement to come to the table if and when the Europeans and the Americans, who are largely funding a lot of you know, the, the war, um, if we wanted to see the war come to a, a quicker end for one reason or another, say, for example, an election coming up in 2024, uh, you can, you know, you can, you can do things to sweeten the pot to, to bring things to a close, right? Or you could just simply not choose, choose not to give any more money, not, you know, choose to hold back those weapons. And um, so there are all sorts of things that you can do behind the scenes to, to configure the situation and encourage and convince an actor that it is in their interest to do what you want them to do, if you have any leverage in that situation. Um, in this particular situation, we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. My guess is one actor that has quite a lot of influence would be China. Obviously, the U.S. isn't going to have any sway with Russia, and that's not going to that's not going to be a credible actor for bring, bringing people to the table. I don't think the UN is going to do the job here. It's just it's it's not the right form, and they're they don't have the right kind of leverage. China does on both sides, right? So if you think about who can in a particular situation have sway and influence, oftentimes it can be a big powerful actor, but. Also, just as interesting, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it's actually a small actor who is friendly with both sides and say, if both sides don't want to talk to each other, 
but or cannot be seen as talking to each other. So I'll go back to that Colombian example again. It was Norway that actually did some of the background work because the FARC could not be seen as talking to the government and the government could not be seen as talking to FARC, right? So they, they tried at different points to negotiate, things fell apart and so on and so forth. Um, and you can't be seen as talking to a terrorist, right? So, so a lot of the initial background work was very much done in secret. And then you get to the point, you, you get far enough along where it looks like, okay, this is going to be a real thing. But it was the Norwegians who played a lot of the behind the scenes roles to bring the two sides together, right? So it, it's not necessarily always somebody who is big and powerful. It's not always necessarily an international organization, but can be. Um, sometimes it's a small country. And then another case to think about is when a really important NGO who does a lot that do, you know, NGOs that do a lot of this kind of work, they are also um, behind the scenes trying to bring, bring people together um, through what we might call track two or track three negotiations. So not high level official negotiations, government to government negotiations or government to rebel group negotiations, but a little bit further down the chain, right? So sometimes these processes start at the local level and then they move up. Sometimes they kind of start at a mid-level and then you try and, you know, you can build it down or build it up. Um, and sometimes, oftentimes you get these really important NGOs like humanitarian dialogue, um, like conciliation resources, where I'm a trustee, uh, like interpeace, like search for common ground. They do a lot of this kind of groundwork um, in bringing their connections together. And then that can turn into something bigger. So both sides are hurting. There's a credible actor, whether big or small, helping to facilitate. They're at the table. So how do we know whether things are going well or going to break down? What would determine kind of the next steps from there? So if you think about that bit of it, if you if you can get them to the table, I think oftentimes that's also a victory in and of itself because people are just sometimes aren't willing to talk to each other at all. And you see, um, and I go back to this other case of Northern Ireland where people just will not be at the same table together. They actually, you have people shuttling between different rooms in a hotel, say, and doing um, shuttle diplomacy, literally transmitting the information from one side and then moving to another space and talking to the other side. And it takes time before they're even willing to say to ever sit at the same table together. So that in itself, you know, sitting at the same table is actually a victory in and of itself. Thinking about where you're going to have these negotiations, that's also important. Um, thinking about how you're going to configure it and, and who might be mediating and um, just sort of the format of the talks, even agreeing on an agenda, that is actually pretty important. Um, like what's on the table to discuss and then who is going to provide the kind of guarantee that uh, you know both sides are going to hold up their promises. Those are different things to keep in mind even before you get to the table. How do you know if things are going well? You often don't because they won't share that information with you publicly. Um, but if you think about, so some of these, the Afghan talks that were had, um, sometimes you get reporters, you know, on the fringes trying to get, you know, squeeze things out of people, you know, a little bit of trying to eke out little bits of information. Uh, but I think that's, that's pretty rare. Most peace processes just don't have any kind of public spotlight on them. And they, 
they happen behind the scenes for a reason, right? Because sometimes you just, you don't want people reporting all of the stuff that is going on. So most of the time I would say, we probably don't know whether things are going well or not, even if there were negotiations to be had right now. And for all we know, they could be going on, um, or maybe lower levels of government are having those negotiations, um, or the Europeans and Americans and Chinese are, are trying to figure out what an end might look like. Uh, we, you know, we just wouldn't know until sometimes when the whole thing is done and announced. This question of credibility, we talked about it uh, in the context of intermediaries, but for the sides involved, and I think this is a really interesting question as it relates to Russia, Putin has signaled for the last couple of years, he wrote a piece about this that just echoing what he said, not believing this myself, um, Ukraine's not a real country, Ukrainians aren't real people, they're just Russians. So if someone who has said that says, okay, we're going to end the war, we're going to agree to peace, how would he possibly be able to signal, no, and we actually, we actually mean it. We tried to destroy your country and nation, but we're done. We're not going to do it anymore. So I guess it doesn't have to be about Putin himself, but how do you, how do you demonstrate you're going to actually stick to an agreement? So third-party guarantees of some kind are often the answer to this. So when you have a small nation, then you can do something like put in a um, UN security or UN peacekeeping operation of some kind, right? So you have third-party forces. They do a little bit of the provision of security to ensure that the thing that you promised is actually going to hold up. But this is a classic problem, right? Because oftentimes, once the agreement is signed, nobody cares anymore. You stop paying attention. And so you don't even follow through on the terms of the agreement that you signed. And that actually becomes the reason for going back to war. So that is a classic point where everything fails. You think you finished, and then the thing erupts again because nobody stuck to their end of the bargain. But then nobody's paying attention, so nobody tries to, to deal with it before the thing blows up again. Another way to deal with it is through what we might call an over-the-horizon security guarantee. So what happened in Sierra Leone after the end of the Civil War was that the UK was able to offer um, Sierra Leoneans an over-the-horizon security guarantee. So the guarantee looks something like if there is um, major violent conflict breaking out uh, against the government within, I think it's within 72 hours or something like that, there is a very short time window. The UK has promised that it will come back and help the country deal with the situation. And I think I want to say it was either for 20 years or 30 years after the 1999 accords. So I, I might have some of these details wrong, but the main point is really about the security guarantee and how a big powerful country with affiliations and ties to the country and the government trusts those guarantees can come in and provide that. Ukraine is much harder, right? Because the situation in this case is not a tiny little rebel force where they're, they're trying to sort things out internally, but Russia. So how do you protect against that? Very difficult. So this is why this issue of, of NATO membership is coming in. But there are other ways around it. NATO membership is one way to think about it because of obviously the you know, triggering um, Article 5 and you know, if, you, if you attack one, then you attack all the NATO countries. But that is also the precise reason why NATO countries might not want Ukraine to be a member, right? So, you know, there's 
there's a very difficult dilemma there to be solved. One way around it is for other powerful nuclear armed countries to provide that kind of a security guarantee and say, look, you know, we promise that if X, some kind of trigger event happens, then we will step in and help you fight, right? So the trick is though, you know, who is willing to do that? Under what conditions? What would be the trigger conditions? Then that would make the other side, in this case, Russia, think twice, right? And then the question is, how strong is the signal, right? You can make that signal pretty strong by, say, stationing a base there, right? So if, for example, France promises or Germany promises or Poland promises, um, probably better if you have a nuclear armed country to do this. So let's just say France or the UK promise, and then they say, okay, anything happens and you get soldiers coming in and they invade again, we can and may choose to do something. We will build we will build um, some kind of military base there. And that's a strong signal of credibility. There are other ways to signal that credibility, basically by spending more money, um, you know, indicating in all sorts of political ways, the seriousness of your intent. Um, you could practice, you could have training exercises together, so on and so forth that are outside of NATO. So I think there are, there are, there are other ways to think about this that don't have to, you know, that may include NATO membership, but don't necessarily have to. And it's up to us to think about that more credibly. If you have China as a third actor in some way, they could be the, the you know, in some way, think about providing some form of guarantee, right? Because if, if Russia does what China has asked it explicitly not to do, that is a very, very bad thing for the Chinese. And I, I don't, you know, the Chinese have quite a lot of influence over Russia. So that's a different way to think about this, right? There, there are lots of different levers that we can use. They are not necessarily military either. I appreciate you joining today. I learned a lot. Thank you for coming by. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Christine for joining and to you, listener. So how do you think the war in Ukraine is going to come to a close? Let me know on Twitter and be sure to follow BNB Russia and Eurasia at Bear Market Brief. The Bear Market Brief podcast and BNB Russia and Eurasia are brought to you by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on many others, visit fpri.org. Our next episode will be in September, so in the interim, have a great rest of your summer. Catch you soon.